Howdy. Welcome to another episode of Canon Calls. I am your host, Jake McAtee. And this week, I had the absolute pleasure of speaking with Pastor Yuri Brito. He is the pastor of a CREC church in Northwest Florida, Providence Church. And he's on the show this week talking about his introduction to a new Canon Press Christian Heritage Series release, Abraham Kuyper's Stone Lectures also known as the Calvinism Lectures. I can't recommend this book enough. If you're familiar with Moscow, if you're familiar with this podcast, Kuiper really is someone who I think embodies all of the virtues, a lot of the virtues that we're going for. He's a happy generalist, as Pastor Brito will talk about. He's curious and he's grateful about the world that the Lord has gifted him, and he's active. His theology doesn't slow him down. It doesn't make him passive but he's actively scurrying around, chasing down his enemies, and and hanging scalps, which is what it's all about. You can pre-order the Stone Lectures. The link will be in the description. So please head that way at canonpress.com. Without further ado, meet Pastor Yuri Brito. All right, now welcoming on special guest and a good friend over the last year or so, Pastor Yuri Brito. Welcome back to Canon Calls. Thanks so much for giving us your time. Jake, thank you. I appreciate you having me back. And um, in my home country, if you invite me back one more time, <laughs> seems like you're formalizing a friendship. So we'll yeah. wait. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right. All right. I won't, uh, I won't, you know, make anything go faster. Here we go. Pastor Brito, you are coming on today because Canon Press is releasing Kuiper's Stone Lectures, the five lectures on Calvinism, and you wrote the introduction. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. As far as I know in recorded history, it's the best introduction ever written <laughs> on the lectures on Calvinism. And uh, I yes. used my time very wisely. I think you all gave me a 3,000-word limit, and I went to 2,998. Yes. Show you how frugal I am. Right. These lectures, uh, Jake, were delivered in 1898 to an audience at Princeton Theological Seminary by the invitation of uh, the great B.B. Warfield. And that was an invitation because Warfield, first of all, wanted to introduce Kuiper to an American audience. And he was able to introduce Kuiper through a series of lectures, which were somewhat controversial to the American audience, because the American audience had in many ways absorbed the kind of modernist ways that were very prevalent in those days. And so Kuiper came as a a kind of boogeyman to modernism, and he offered these lectures, which became the famous lectures on Calvinism. And what's interesting about this is that there was a lot of background dispute about Kuiper's effectiveness as a Dutchman bringing his Dutch, quote, worldview into an American audience. His contemporary, Herman Bavink, was very um, befuddled by the fact that Kuiper would dare bring his Dutchness to the American audience. Um, (laughs) But as Kuiper would later sort of relate, the principles of Calvinism are the kinds of things that do well in a Dutch bar and in an American pub. Love it. Love it. So do you mind, so you've given us a little bit, he's a Dutchman, 
uh he at least has a friend or slash enemy or at least uh uh you know, there's a there's another man named herman bovink can you just tell us who is abraham kuyper abraham kuyper is a difficult person to sort of interpret and speak of but abraham kuyper was born in south holland and he was born to good old-fashioned catechetical dutch heidelberg parents he was homeschooled by his father, born in 1837, and Kuiper had the kind of upbringing you would expect today in the kind of uh, classical school, Christian school world, where there was a strong emphasis on reading the classics. Kuiper spoke several languages. However, his own father, who homeschooled him, was not the kind of man who would uphold to biblical orthodoxy. He was, he was skeptical. He was, in some ways, a kind of a doubter, the kind of man who didn't believe in the true authority and authenticity and genuineness of the revelation of God. He played a lot with concepts of resurrection and crucifixion. He uttered those words, but he, mean, he meant something very different than what the later Kuiper would believe. Okay. And so his father and son were kind of raised in this kind of environment of skepticism. And Kuiper grew up in this environment, and it took him to the academic world. He already he still upheld these kinds of, of worldviews when it comes to modernism. And there is even a situation in which he remembers being in class where one of the professors, uh, Jake, spoke of the resurrection of Jesus in terms of psychological categories, doubting whether this was a physical thing or not. And once he said that, Kuiper said that he and his entire uh, student body sort of gave him a standing ovation because this kind of doubt of, let's say, Heidelberg, Dutch theology, religion was very innovative in those days. And this was becoming the new thing in the block. And these professors were all about modernism. So Kuiper grew up in that kind of environment, even into his, his academic years. In fact, his dissertation, I believe, was an attempt to critique Calvin as being one who opposed modernism, and he offered a, a strong critique of Calvin. Later on, he would reflect on that, and it was in the early days when he was working in the academic world as he was contemplating Calvin and Geneva and his work there that those memories uh, lingered in his mind. And one day he began to look back and consider that dissertation. And that's what began in reviving Kuiper's interest in Calvin and rethinking what Calvin was saying and bringing uh, Calvin alive today to his own thinking. Yeah, it does seem that's that's uh, fascinating to know that his dissertation was that. See, it would seem almost like the uh, the Stone Lectures then would almost sort of be his like public you know, undoing of that or the redo of that, where instead of uh, critiquing Calvin's uh, lack of modernity, he's sort of applying Calvin to modernity. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So this this was now, this was when the, when the mature Kuiper came into the, the public stage, it became Calvin contra mundum. And yep. the mundum of the time was modernity or modernism. And so this was his distillation of all his Calvinistic thinking. And so from my perspective, from the 16th century, you've had very mature Calvinist. From my humble perspective, Kuiper is Calvinism personified. He is, in my estimation, Abraham Kuiper is what Calvin envisioned 
when he began his Geneva school in the 16th century, when he envisioned what should students look like when they go out beyond Geneva, I think what he envisioned was a bunch of little Kuyperians growing up, graduating and going out into the world and doing what Kuyper very maturely did in the lectures on Calvinism. Can you tell us a little bit about what's in the Stone Lectures? Like, what are the what are the chapters essentially? Well, the the Stone Lectures are, in some ways, the way in which Abraham Kuyper viewed Calvinism in very practical form. And so, for Abraham Kuyper, Calvinism functioned as a way of application to all areas of life. And so, for Abraham Kuyper. These applications had very distinct functions in society. And so he focuses on these lectures on, on a variety of things. He focused on the application of Calvinism uh, first as a life system, and then Calvin, Calvinism in its relate in its relationship. Now, see what I'm doing there. His relationship to religion. So that whole yeah. dichotomy that yeah. people put between religion. And relationship is really odd and un-Calvinistic, I would say. And then he talked about the application of Calvinism in the political sphere, in the scientific sphere, in the artistic sphere. And then the sixth lecture, which is often overlooked, is Kuyper essentially saying, everything that I have said is now going to be applied to the future. And what does the future look like? Well, the future looks very Calvinistic. And so this is how, how he kind of um offer this magnum opus, this manifesto of Calvinism to the world. Do you know how it was received? You know, initially it was received quite poorly because <laughs> there was some concerns that a lot of people couldn't understand his English well. Okay. Before Kuyper traveled to the United States, he hired a, a Dutch woman who spoke English quite well. And he went over his notes of the lectures with her so that he would be able to sort of pronounce and enunciate words um, faithfully, understandably for an American audience. Got it. So it was uh, not well understood, and it became a lot more popular, of course, when he went back and sort of revised those notes and offered an English translation, which went through several translations. Okay. As I said before, some folks were concerned that... Um, his language was too philosophical for the Princetonian audience that the categories he was using was too over the top. Wow. Um, and it may have been in those days. It may have, that's maybe a true analysis, but I think the, the influence of those lectures speak for themselves. I was going to say, you know, when, uh, at least in principle, when you were talking about, you know, did he bring his Dutchness over when I, my experience when reading the stone lectures was, it was in, you know, insanely practical for the times it felt like it was it could have been written in the 90s um and i thought this is you know i i if uh if i didn't see the title or or if i didn't see the author and his name maybe i would have guessed it could have been an american or or you know it feels so practical to to the moment now um it, is that was that your experience yeah surely i mean listen um Kuiper, Abraham Kuiper was the Fauci of his generation. <laughs> he was a true prophet who saw everything coming to pass and yeah. he called it right. absolute accuracy. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think, you know, I, I really I really think the best sort of analogy is that I think if you're looking beyond Abraham Kuiper, I think in some ways Francis Schaeffer was kind of a 
a, a, a Kuyperian figure that really attempted to see the world the way Abraham Kuyper did and apply these things. And so perhaps in those days, Calvinism was so lost in that 19th century audience at Princeton, there had been this lengthy period in which the writings of you know, Calvin and Luther and Bootser and the, the 16th, 17th century, the Puritan writers had gone through this immense absence in academic institutions to the point where professors could get up and say there was no resurrection and the people give him a standing ovation. So I don't think it was because he spoke above them uh, so much intellectually, but he spoke above them to a theology that they had forgotten. And so that is another reason why these lectures are so revolutionary in some ways, because Kuiper hit on something that he was trying to apply in the Netherlands in all the spheres he, he, he talks about to an audience that had forgotten that this was one way in which the Netherlands of the day was some somewhat uh, beyond the uh, the American audience. Now, there were your Warfields and others who were trying yeah, to bring yeah. back some of that decency to American theology, but by and large, it was an environment that was eaten up by the kinds of things Abraham Kuyper grew up with. Yeah. You mentioned earlier, just the, even just, it got me thinking the connection with him and Calvin and sort of him, uh, Calvin applied essentially in in the modern era era. And one thing that I've appreciated about Kuyper is, uh, just learning about the Renaissance man that he was, um, which is not unlike Calvin in some ways. Calvin was a lawyer. Uh, he ended up becoming a civil leader. He, you know, he he was sort of in all of these different areas of thought. He wasn't just siloed in theology. Um, can you talk a little bit about Kuiper? He he doesn't seem someone siloed either. No, and I, I think there was much of that Calvinistic impulse, the the kind of thing that says that if a man is not being productive for God, he's being productive for the guy on the other side. Yeah. And so Kuiper really believed that the level of productivity, and we can talk a little bit later uh, behind the scenes with whiskey about some of the things where I find <laughs> Kuiper unhealthy, especially in regards to his view of the church. But I think Kuiper's sort of prodigious and prolific efforts received an extra dose of stamina when he met Jesus in the little country church he began to pastor. And so the level of productivity he had before didn't have a telos. The level of productivity he had once he found the true physically resurrected Jesus gave him the kind of impulse that made him think about the world anew. So whereas before Christianity was very much engaged in this form of a pietistic internalized religion, the Kuiper that went through this uh, personal renaissance and renewal and rebirth in, as a Christian began to see the world anew, and which meant that everything he saw in the universe needed to have the imprint and the tattoo of Jesus on it. And so Kuiper said, whatever I can do as a human to participate in these endeavors, I will do. And again, this is the Calvinistic impulse. What you said is very accurate. Calvin in Geneva had his hands in all sorts of things. He was a pioneer figure. And whereas uh, Kuiper also had his hands in all sorts of things, the difference is Calvin was an exegete 
of, of the scriptures, Kuiper wasn't, which means that what you get in Kuiper are these larger principles rather than a detailed analysis of, okay. uh, let's yeah. say, you know, how to apply Exodus 21 to the Dutch political system, you know? <laughs> That's not what he did, yeah. but he took the principles of Calvin and he applied it in his in his world. And so he saw there was just not one area that was removed from the imprint of the Lordship of Jesus. Another thing is um, you mentioned modernity has a lot to do with these lectures, just the time, the context. Um, which which it does make it super practical for now. It makes it super edifying for now. Um, there's an interesting, it's an interesting time. You said 1898, is that correct? 1898, correct. Um, there seems to be a sort of genre of book that's sort of, uh, contra modernity setting out orthodoxy. So you have Chesterton's orthodoxy that came out, I think, uh, shortly after early 1900s. Right. Uh, C.S. Lewis's, uh, Mere Christianity came out in the fifties. So a little later than the other two guys. But it's it does seem to be just this uh, uh, a healthy, proactive reaction to sort of what are the bounds of orthodoxy. There's so much going on. Do you have a thought on uh, just in between those three attempts at setting forth a vision of uh, sort of an act of Christianity? Do you have thoughts as uh, how Kuiper relates or differs from the other two guys? Well, I don't. I don't have much thoughts. I have. Um... Uh, you know, somewhere between five and seven thousand words. <laughs> okay. Okay. Perfect. This is what I want. This is what I want to say. Um, it appears that in in that time frame there was a very clear entrance of secularism in America and in Europe. That Kuiper saw, that Warfield saw, that Boving to a lesser extent saw. Yep. But it, it was clear there was a secularism kind of entering the American European culture, and the things that society believed to be common. Uh, let's say the the grammatical currency of the day that we had at one time shaped by biblical thinking, that wasn't the case anymore, right? So there was no consensus of language and morality. Of course, in our day, we're very grateful there's just a hundred percent consensus in every direction. <laughs> yes. So there were a lot of there were a lot of disagreements, obviously, in those days, but we could still disagree among Christians using terminology that was common to to everybody. As the as the twenty-first, as the twentieth century emerged, you begin to see a dissemination of of secular thought. Leftist ideologies became much more pervasive. So you do have what you're saying. You do have the birth of these sort of theological magnum opus from very creative authors, and who are seeing these trends take place, and they each touch on unique areas of interest. Right? You mentioned. Chesterton, who was kind of our our happy, rotund, wordsmithy yeah. guy, <laughs> who wanted to make the Apostles' Creed variety of Christianity kind of great again. So he focuses a lot on the, the glories of the Christian experience. Lewis later on comes on and tackles all these existential problems. He does it through uh, intellectual rigor. He addresses various societal concerns. I don't know the extent of which Lewis was familiar with Kuiper, but he does offer this sort of tantalizing account of the Christian faith. like. This is really good. If you come and hang out with us every day is going to be new mercies and you're going to be surprised by joy really, really often. Yeah. And so for whereas prior there was this sort of internal approach to religion, Lewis saw that faith was not some distant reality. It was something close. It was something attractive, even 
something uh, apologetically compelling, let's put it that way. Yeah. But Kuiper, out of this little group, I think he was the most astonishing of all. He, It's true, let's say that when you read Kuiper, you don't say, wow, so Chestertonian. Yeah. No, or yeah. no, there was no the kind of Lewis gravitas where the imagery just grabs you, you know. But he did have the political and theological gravitas to deal with some really heavy lifting that Chesterton and Lewis didn't. He wanted to see a comprehensive system where all things cohered, where the faith was exclusively at odds with the secular agenda, where Christ ruled over or over every sphere of society. And this is something he writes in, in the beginning of the uh, in the book preface. Here, um, there was a I can't remember who wrote it, but I, I remember. Uh, putting down this notation here, where Chesterton states that the purpose is to attempt an explanation, not of whether the Christian faith can be believed, but of how he personally has come to believe it. Yeah. And so I think uh, Kuiper, uh, prior to that, uh, Kuiper is attempting to see not so much the experience of faith, but the faith being lived out, being applied to the human needs, being applied to the arbitrariness of truth in his day. So Kuiper was much more of the kind of guy who would punch not just down, but up and sideways, <laughs> whereas these other authors had particular intents in mind. Like Lewis was very much dealing with the world of apologetics. Chesterton had his cultural concerns. Well, Kuiper says, no, um, I want all of that, but I want it, I want to add it to this buffet that I've already collected of issues that I want to tackle. Of course, there are issues that Kuiper doesn't tackle, but I think what you see in Kuiper's lectures in Calvinism, he says that these principles here, the principles of the Lordship of Jesus, has something to say to all these fears that I'm addressing and to another hundred spheres, another hundred themes that I haven't addressed because I don't know they exist yet. <laughs> Once I know they exist, I'll make that application. The scope seems so much broader. You know, I, I mean, I think literally one of the chapters is Calvinism as a life system. Um, I know. Which yep. is, you know, uh, you know, 40,000 feet at best, you know, you're looking at, you know, from space there. So, um, awesome. So, if nothing else, if you're not, if, if, uh, if, Kuiper's stone lectures are not in your rotation of 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 your Lewis and and Chesterton. You, you need to add it. Um, one thing I'd like to end on is what what from Abraham Kuiper do you think? What characteristic? What virtue of him personally would you want to see the church today uh, receive? I would like to see the church embody a kind of faith on Sunday morning through the perspective, not so much of how can I grow in my piety? I think that's a, a given, but I would like the church to see singing, confessing, absolution, the Lord's Supper, the preached word, the commission, the whole shebang. I'd like the church to see these features of this great dramatic presentation that God gives us as not an internalized way of living the faith, but as a blueprint for how to apply the world of the church in the world. 
So if the church is God's alternative polis, alternative city, you know, as we sing, the Zion city of our God, then how can we take this, what I refer to as the headquarters of the kingdom, how can we make every other sphere of society little outposts, or as my friend Dustin Messer says, little micro-Christendoms that reflect the church? So, uh, you know, just a simple application of this, if the church is a tithing, giving community, how then do we apply that into our business community? If the church is a community that confesses their sins, how then do we apply that to the relationals, the relationships we have with the people outside the church? If the church is a community sent out into the world, as the Great Commission implies, then what does the blueprint of Sunday morning, how does that blueprint shape the way you look at everything else? And so what I'm looking for, it's, it's nothing revolutionary. It's just this heavy movement that evangelicals are allergic to, the heavy movement from heart theology to the application of that into all of life. That is uh, certainly one area. Uh, the other area is th- the second and uh, final of 17 areas, yeah. but I'll just yeah. give the second area here. <laughs> the, the second area would be that Christians would become in their education, that moms would become, that dads would become in their training, happy generalists, meaning that I would like the church to be the kinds of people who apply this Kyperian world into everything. So what I want to make out of my five children, for example, is I want them to leave go out into the world after they leave my home, being the kinds of people who are curious, the kinds of people who say, you know, I've I've never heard of astronomy, but um, give me a few paragraphs. Uh, I've, I've never heard of the way atoms function, but I'm curious to learn a little bit about it. In other words, so that they can be the kinds of people who are really, really fun at parties because the evangelical faith has produced a lot of sour, bad at parties, human beings. And I want to create the kinds of people who go to parties and have a happy layer of addition into the conversations that are taking place. And so I think, I think the application from internal religion to outward religion and the happy generalist sort of vision is the kind of thing, Jake, that I sincerely believe will make America great again. Amen. Amen. Thank you for that. Yeah, the more the more we know, the more we have to be grateful for and and uh and that's awesome. That's 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 what it's all about. So thank you for that. Thank you Pastor Yuri for your time. We're very grateful. You can go pre-order the book, The Stone Lectures from Abraham Kuyper with a fantastic introduction from Pastor Brito. Go get it today. Link will be in the description. Pastor Yuri, I'm going to let you get on with your day now. My absolute pleasure, Jake, <laughs> and we will do this Again, very soon, brother. I look forward to that whiskey and uh, and some Kuiper criticisms as well. I think How you promised that. What do you think about the pizza? Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. See you soon, sir. All right. Take care.